So this morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be look at how to survive and thrive during evil times. How to survive and thrive during evil times. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians 5. And our scripture text for this morning is going to be verses 1 through 21. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. And would you please follow along with me now as I read the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your word to be preached this morning in truth and in power. Lord, we know that the power of the gospel does not lie in man's wisdom, nor in rhetoric or the ability to speak well, cunning human ideas, or interesting stories. It is spiritual, and it is you who speak this power through your word. And so we pray you would speak life into our hearts this morning. 
We pray that you would cast light onto who we are, onto the culture in which we live, and help us to become bearers of light in this world, exposing the darkness, bearing witness to Christ, and with the time allotted to each one of us to make a difference for eternity. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at this text, Paul mentions in verse 15, or excuse me, 16, he says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And so I'm calling this message, how to survive and thrive during evil times, because that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying that the times are evil. Of course, he was saying this back then in the first century, but in certain ways, things haven't changed. I would say some things have gotten better. I I think that's objectively true, but in other areas, we've gotten worse. We're actually worse off in other areas. So I think our day qualifies as evil days. So the question for us is, well, first of all, A, how do I survive? If these days are evil, how do I even even make it through? But then secondly, and I think this is very encouraging and hopeful, is it possible not only to survive in evil times, but to thrive? And I think the answer is yes. And so this morning, I want to give you four things that we can do that Paul gives us here on how we can survive and thrive during evil times. And the first thing we can do is this. Number one, be an imitator of God, not the culture. Look at verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. It has been famously said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And according to Andrew Meltzoff, the co-director of the University of Washington Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, he says that, quote, human beings are the premier imitators on planet Earth. The old statement, monkey see, monkey do, should really be changed to human see, human do. So if both of these things are true, then it is not a question of if, but who are you imitating? And I would suggest that we imitate who or what we love, and that what we imitate, we become like. How many of you have seen the movie Jaws, the original one, the good one? Yeah. Um, I don't really think of it as a horror movie, but I actually saw in the top horror movies of all time. When I think of horror movie, I think of like Friday the 13th or Nightmare Before, not Christmas, but Elm Street. You you know, those are horror movies. But Jaws was actually listed as a horror movie, and I thought about it, and it doesn't fit the slasher type kind of movie, but in terms of movie that scares you for the rest of your life, you know what? I think it is. I I can't go to the beach. I remember living in Hawaii and beautiful water. I'm swimming and I hear dun 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 dun. Well, so you think of Jaws for the shark and you think about it for um, you know these these scary suspenseful scenes. But there's a scene in the first Jaws that is just classic cinema. And it's the scene where the Amityville police chief Roy Scheider 
comes home from a horrible day of work. People have been killed in the water and people are trying to get off the island. It's ruining the tourist industry. The mayor is just all over Roy Scheider and he's just coming home and just life is miserable. And he comes home and his wife's already eaten dinner. The food's cold and he sits down at the table. And the only one still at the table is his little boy who looks like he's about five years old, my, the age of my youngest son. And if you remember the scene, Roy Scheider just leans there and you know you've had those days. He just puts his face in his hands. But as he does this, he senses that there might be eyes on him. And so he slowly pulls his fingers down and he looks over at his little boy who's doing this. He suspects that his little boy is imitating him. And so he puts his hands together. The little boy puts his hands together. Then he does this with his fingers. The little boy does this with his fingers. And then he makes a mean face. And the little boy goes and makes a mean face. And then he leans forward to his little boy and he said, give us a kiss. And the little boy says, why? He's like, because I need it. And the little boy gives him a kiss on the cheek. I think it's true that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And you imitate who you love. And so what Paul says here is, like a beloved child, we are to look to our heavenly Father and imitate his character and action and values with our lives. Not the world's. But one of the things that happens is people fall in love with the world. They don't say it that way, but that's what's happening. When you begin no longer to imitate your heavenly father, you no longer imitate that. Maybe that was, you had a good earthly father like Roy Scheider in the movie, and, and you're imitating, but then your eyes are taken away, and you begin looking elsewhere for models. I want to be like this movie star. So you start dressing like them, talking like them. This rock star, this musician, oh, I want to start dressing like them, talking like them. You imitate. Paul warns us that we are not to be imitators of the world. We are to be imitators of God. And that is one of the ways that not only we can know that we actually love God, but it lets the world know that we love God. And what does a life that imitates God look like? Most basically, Paul tells us here in verse 2, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So if you love God, if your heart has been warmed for God, and that's something, by the way, you can't just do for yourself. Not, in, not asking anyone to warm your own heart for God. It's something that through the hearing of the word that God through the Spirit does to you. That you will find your heart as you hear God's word. As the Spirit speaks through that word. As that word becomes planted in your heart. Your affections become warmed for God and you desire to look like God. But that desire has to be met with truth. You have to know, okay, I desire to imitate God, but what does that look like? And most basically, we imitate God when we lay our lives down day by day in the worship of God and the service of others. 
just as Christ did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. That as we wake up each morning, we do not simply ask, what can my family do for me today? What can my church do for me today? What can my co-workers or, or America or whatever, what can they all do for me? We lay our lives down. And we say, because we've first been served by Jesus Christ, we now love him and want to imitate him. And so the whole shape of our lives is one of sacrificial service. It's how people know we actually love God. So be an imitator of God, not of the culture. Number two, do not be deceived regarding the serious nature of sin and God's wrath. Verses 6 and 7 say, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. It is a perennial temptation for those who preach the word of God to change it in order to please the listeners. It's a perennial temptation. It never goes away. It's always there. The reason it's always there is because on one hand, there's a degree to which, of course, any speaker, if they want to be heard, of course they want to speak in a way that people want to hear. You don't purposely try to speak in a way that nobody wants to hear. You don't do that. So how you speak, of course, can be sensitive to what the listener wants to hear. But there always has to be a core, a conviction about the content of what one speaks. And that that conviction has to be rooted in Scripture, the Word of God. And that regardless of what people want to hear, if it's not just how they hear things, but what they want to hear. If they don't want to hear God's word anymore, the temptation of the preacher or teacher will be to simply submit to the will and whims of the listeners. Paul warned his apprentice in the gospel ministry, Timothy, in his letter, 2 Timothy 4.3. He warned Timothy, young pastor, this, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. In other words, Paul warns Timothy, there is going to be a market for bad teaching. There's actually going to be a market for it, Timothy. Not bad in terms of rhetoric, but content. And because there will be a market, what do we know? There will be a supply. Wherever there is a demand, there is a supply. There is a market for bad teaching that compromises the Word of God, that tells people what they want to hear. Rather than coming to church to be corrected, People want to come to be affirmed in what they already believe. 
And if such is the case, you're not going to church because you want God, but because you want more of yourself. Christians, Christian preachers, must preach the Word of God. In our context this morning, we are told to beware all those teachers who teach that you can continue proudly in sin and still inherit the kingdom of God. Because you can't. So more and more, and again, I'm not sure how pervasive it is, but I know for a fact it's out there. I've seen it. I've been there. I've heard it. Sat. I've listened to it. People that literally would take passages, and they're not difficult. I'm not talking about, oh gosh, well, there's they're arguing on the Greek, and it could be this. And could, I'm not talking about stuff like that. There are some things that are difficult. I'm talking about the things that are undisputed, even by people who reject them, that kind of a thing. They'll say, yes, this passage teaches this is a sin, but we don't need to listen to it, God's of God of love, and that means this changes now for you. You can just have your sin and Jesus, and the kingdom, all in one scoop. But Paul says, don't be deceived. You cannot cherish your sin and Christ at the same time. We must choose who we will serve. There are only two paths, the path of life and the path of death. We can serve Christ or we can serve the devil. And it is that simple. So my warning is, beware any teachers, authors, bloggers, YouTubers, who teach in any way that you can cherish your sin and still have Christ. I marvel that there's people I've seen on social media that go to a good Bible teaching church and then they'll read and view and by the writings of straight-up heretics. People that deny the gospel. People that say you can have your sin and go to heaven. And they're promoting that. And it's like, in whatever form, whether it's your local church or anywhere else, because these are fundamental, essential things. That means the well is poisoned. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not secondary things. These are essential. And you might go, oh, but they're really good on this. I don't think it's worth drinking from, even if they happen to get a secondary thing right. If they're wrong on something as basic as that, the well is poisoned, and it is not water we can drink from. Number three, do not hide evil. Expose it. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. The Greek word translated as expose here is elenkete, and it means to convict, to reprove, to scrutinize, to bring to light, or to expose. In other words, not only are Christians to avoid actively participating in evil, but we are called as a public witness against evil. You can't approve of it. You can't just let it go and say nothing. Christians are to call evil for what it is. And the ultimate standard as to what counts as evil does not come from popular culture, but it comes from God's infallible word. 
it's sad to see that, you know, you hear about Hollywood and Hollywood culture and how many famous producers of award-winning films, it has been brought to light that they were rapists, they were sexually harassing people, women in particular, and they got away with it for a long time, not just because there's evil people, but because there's evil people around them who might not be doing it, but they will not expose evil. And these things went on for a very, very long time. And Christians should never, ever allow such evil to go on unchecked. It's not something where we should have to wait for somebody else to do it. Or for even non-Christians to come out and say this is evil. Christians should be the first people to expose such evil. There is no excuse for hiding it. Do not hide evil. Expose it. Number four, create cultures of Christ-centered worship. Look at verses 18 through 21. Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The word culture has become very popular in recent times. This is partly due to the internet and global migration which is bringing Americans into contact with many people from many different cultures. And one of the effects of that is it causes people in America to become more aware of their own culture. And I think that's a good thing. One of the things about just the homogeneity that, that was a part of earlier America, not saying it was bad, just what it was, is when you never come into contact with somebody who's outside your culture, you don't even see that you have a culture. It's almost like you, you, you don't acknowledge it. It's like a fish in water. You tell the fish, hey, did you know you're in water? I'm like, water? Where? It's just, it's just the atmosphere I'm in. You, you don't think about it until you take the fish out of the water. Then they realize they were in the water the whole time. So coming into contact with all these other cultures has made people in America in particular become more aware of their culture. In fact, so is this notion of culture and its importance that big businesses have invested heavily, millions, billions of dollars, in developing cultures within their workplaces. As the late business guru Peter Drucker once said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And culture may be defined as, generally, the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group, or also the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as diversions or a way of life that are shared by people in a place or a time. And so against the prevailing culture of evil, 
You know, when you, especially the teenage years, you know, it's like little kids, they wrestle with individual sins. There's like, okay, there's the temptation to lie. There's the temptation to steal a cookie. You see these individual things, but they're not so much yet lured by culture, the world that's out there. But especially as children are moving into adolescence and they're starting to disassociate with the culture of mom and dad, they begin looking not just at the individual sins that are out there, but a new way to belong in the world. They're actually looking at culture. And when they choose who they want to belong to, they don't choose it merely because one thing is being done or one thing's not being done, or even it's, it's more than just the sum of the things being done. There is an atmosphere, there is an environment, there is a, a spirit, with the, the corporate spirit, the culture, and it's that that woos them. And so when we speak to people who are caught up in the culture of the world and you just talk about rules and you say, well, hey, you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that, and it has seemingly no pull on their hearts, it's because culture is so powerful. And what I believe Paul is doing here is he's saying Christians are not just called to do isolated acts of good. We are called to create cultures of Christ-centered worship. We are called to develop a kingdom culture. And how do we do that? How do we create a kingdom culture that answers the question, not just what do Christians do, but what does it mean and what does it feel like to belong to the people of God? And I believe that we have six things that we can draw from these four verses. The first thing we can do to create a Christ-centered culture, kingdom culture, is this. Reject the influence of sin and evil. Rejecting the influence of sin and evil is not something you do at one time in your life and then you don't worry about it anymore. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion every week. By doing it every week, clearly what we're saying is, I don't believe that you needed your sins forgiven at one time, once upon a time. You need Jesus. You need his forgiveness. You need his cleansing. And you need to be released from the influence and power of sin today. That means confession of sin, rooting out of sin, self-examination, just as David does in the, in the Psalms, Lord, search me and know me. Try my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me. And I don't think that was rhetorical, as it might be for many today. I think David was literally asking God to search his heart and to show him anything in there that's not right so that he can confess it and get it out. We need to constantly reject the influence of sin and evil. And if you say to yourself, oh, well, I don't have that, then you can already repent of your self-deception because you do have sin in your life. You have not seen the glory of the Lord face to face. That's when we shall be who we are meant to be, is when we see him as he is, and then we will become who we're meant to be. But in this day and in this moment, we still have the influence of evil. We must reject it. And it's a way of life. 
And people should see that when they come in and, and people are hurting other people's feelings or somebody belittled someone, we don't just go, oh, whatever, no big deal. Don't want to, you know, it's like, no, we deal with things. And people can see that, that we're looking out for people. If somebody doesn't get treated well, I can't guarantee anybody, if they join the church, nobody will ever hurt their feelings. I cannot guarantee that. What I can guarantee is we will do our best to work on it and not just sweep it under the carpet and pretend like it wasn't there. Reject the influence of sin and evil. Secondly, we passionately seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. It says, don't be drunk with wine, you're under the influence of wine, but rather, so notice this, he's not saying don't get drunk, he's saying get drunk, but not with what you're used to. Get drunk with the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. Be absolutely intoxicated with the knowledge of God. Let God's love, God's power, God's truth, God's people, God's mission, God's values, God's priorities just absolutely fill you to overflowing. It's what so many people do on a, on a Friday night. They go out and they drink and they, be, they come under the influence and, and it's leading them where they want them to go. And they go, well, I wasn't really doing that or I wasn't being myself. I was controlled like this. Well, you have permission to not be your old self anymore. Be drunk with the Spirit. Be doing the things God wants you to do. That you are absolutely carried away with what God is doing. Because deep down, we long to be filled. We long to be filled. We use that language of intoxication not just in reference to alcohol, but to love. In the Song of Solomon, the book that's, you know, like rated NC-17, and I, I honestly don't know if I could teach it on a Sunday morning without blushing or without you blushing and running away. But in there, it talks about always be intoxicated with the love of your spouse. Be intoxicated. We are to be intoxicated with the Spirit of God, and we are passionately seeking the filling of the Spirit. We're not just at church to do good things, and because we ought to, it's we want to be filled with the Spirit of God. Passionately, always seeking the filling of the Spirit. Number three, prioritize our gathering together with the local church. One of the ways we create a culture is that we act like we value it. Why would anyone want to be a part of a group that you don't even want to be a part of? Think about that for a moment. And this is a problem that's pervasive. Most pastors I talk to, attendance is horribly inconsistent at most places. People don't come, people don't show up, and again, I know there's good reasons not to. There's also a lot of bad reasons. Southern California, ah, you know, the weather was kind of nice. Oh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit tired. It's like, man, you know what? It hit me uh, having kids. It's like, just, I'll get a, I'll get a nap when I die. <laughs> you know, like, that's when I'm going to get a nap. It'll be when I'm dead. I just, I'm going to be tired. Being tired is just going to be the rest of my life. So it's like, get over it. Don't let being tired get in the way of what you need to do. Literally, I will take a dirt nap one day, and I'll be able to rest, and that's fine. But right now, tired or not, I do what I value. We need to so love and prioritize the church that it's contagious. 
that that's why people want to come is because you want to be there. That's the most contagious thing you can possibly do. When I look at the history of Calvary Chapel, which is the movement of churches I grew up in, when you look at how they blew up and became this movement, it wasn't due to any shrewd marketing whatsoever. Like, none. I mean, you would almost look at it and be like, are you kidding me? Like, it's bad. You don't even do, like, basic normal things. You're just not doing it all. And yet it blew up to thousands. Why? Because people wanted to be there so bad. They were so passionate for the filling of the Spirit. They were so loving and adoring Christ and, and taking sin seriously and pushing it out that people were like, I want to go with you. Can you come by in your VW bus and just pick us all up? Because we want to be where you are. Because we see this in you. The advertising was you. The people of God. Prioritizing the fellowship of God. And that's why people want to come. But if we're like, I don't really want to go to my own church. I don't want to be there. It's not a Like, why would we ever expect anyone else to want to come? When you, who are a member, don't even take it seriously. We prioritize our gathering with the local church. Four, we create beautiful art and music that glorifies God and envisions his kingdom. Notice the repetition of music here in verse 19. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, giving thanks always to God the Father. He's repeating this over and over and over, just this idea of music and of art. Because a part of any culture, if you look at any culture that lasts and have an influence, what do you find? Music and art. I mean, can you think of Greek culture without thinking of the Parthenon? Rome without the Forum? The Colosseum? The Renaissance without Rembrandt? I mean, really? Any of these great movements? Would they have been what they were without fresh music and painting and, and today, I would say, film and media and all that? One of the things we need to do is take this seriously. And it's not just, oh, this will be a cool little marketing thing. No, this is a part of who we are. It's our value. It's not a gimmick. It's not something that we invest in if we think it'll be entertaining. No, we do it because we think God and the gospel is beautiful. And when you think something is beautiful, people can't shut you up about it. And you want to express things. That's where the great love songs come from. Because you can't bottle it up. It wants to come out and it wants to create and it wants to make something new that is itself beautiful and points to the thing that inspired it. And so this is an invitation and an encouragement to all of you to participate in creating beautiful art and music through whatever medium you can. And if you're not an artist or a musician, fine. Support the artists and musicians in the church. Talk with the pastor about ideas that you have so that you can work through them and make sure that they're biblically faithful, they're theologically sound, they're, they're glorifying to God. Wrestle through these things. This is a part of creating a Christian culture, a culture that is beautiful. And lastly, we put others before ourselves. Once again, it's like any relationship in the world, any business in the world, 
It's about what are you going to do for the company, right? That's basic interview skills like, son, honey, when you go to the interview, don't tell them what they can do for you. Like, make sure that's not the first thing. You know, they're like, so how can you benefit our, our Fortune 500 company? Well, I can tell you what you all can do for me. You can start by giving me three-day weekends. <laughs> and you can increase my salary to double that of your partner. You know, you don't go in doing that. You say, how can I serve? So many relationships, again, it's, it's not about, you know, it's like, what am I going to get from this person? What are they going to do for me? How much are you willing to sacrifice? We should be a church where people constantly just see over and over and over again. It's not one person. It's not, it's not just the pastor. It's not the leader. That's not a sign of a healthy church. If you got one person who's healthy, it's that everyone in the church, as a way of life, with no special formal assignments, like we have a sign-up sheet, who would like to put others before themselves this week. Well, I'm, I did it last week. <laughs> you know, I'm not doing it. I'm about due for some service. You know, no, it's a way of life. It's a culture. It's a value. Somebody might be assigned to something. If they're not there, boom, people jump in and do it, as I saw this morning. That's a cultural value of seeing the need and just meeting it. And that's a sign that we know the Savior who first served us. And so if we do all of these things, if we can be imitators of God, if we refuse to be received regarding the serious nature of sin, if we refuse to hide evil, give it a hiding place, but expose it, if we create Christ-centered kingdom cultures, then not only will we be able, will Christians be able to survive the evil days in which we live, but we will create an environment in which many can thrive in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much that we can be a part of a new world. Your word says, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Lord, if we have placed faith in Jesus, we are a part of the new heavens and the new earth already being created in and through us. And you're doing it smack in the middle of the old order, the old way of the world. I just pray that we would take this calling seriously. That we would understand the importance of working together to build a kingdom culture. To have influence. To not only see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ, but even for those that don't, that they still benefit from the kind of world we are creating through the gospel. We pray now for this time of worship that you will invite your people in, that they would hear the call of Christ, that they would experience the conviction and power of the Holy Spirit, and that we would all give ourselves completely to the work that you are doing to bring all glory and honor to Christ. We pray this now in his name. Amen.